What is up, everybody? This is Seth Mosley. You are listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. And this is an exciting week because you know why? It is the culmination of our month dedicated to music producers. All you music producers out there who are making the world go around sound beautiful and helping those songs get heard and race up to the top of the charts. So it's been an amazing month. I've learned a ton. Heard from Tommy Prophet. Me and X got to share some of our tricks and some plugins that we love using. It's free tools that we love using. So if you haven't checked out that one, I think that was the second one in this series. Tommy Prophets was the first talked about producing music for film and TV. And then we got to hear some, some testimonials for some people who went through our Full Circle Music Academy music production mastery course and what they learned from that. And then this last week is pretty phenomenal. It's with my friend, Matt Bronlewy. He has had a remarkable career. And the question that I ask is this, what do Chris Tomlin, Selena Gomez, Natalie Imbruglia, Amy Grant, and DC Talk all have in common? Well, in case you didn't figure it out, it is all Matt Bronlewy. He has been an instrumental figure in their songs, their music, and their careers, really, because it all starts with the songs. So he's a songwriter. He's a producer. He's done work in the Christian genre, was a founding member of the band Jars of Clay, multiple Grammy award-winning band. And he is a label owner. He is an author, writes some amazing fantasy novels, finishing his third one right now, is a filmmaker. And... Trying to think if there's anything else. He's kind of a little bit of everything, which I think is why I like him so much. For those of you guys who have been along for the ride on this full circle music journey, you'll know a little bit about me by now that I'm a little bit of the same. And, I, and that's why I like Matt so much. You can't box him in. I call him the man that can't be boxed in. And just when you think he's hit the pinnacle of his career, he reinvents himself and does something else and has a giant smash hit song on country radio, which actually just happened. He just celebrated his first number one as a songwriter on the Cole Swindell and Dirks Bentley song, Flatliner. So he's doing some of that. He's still making Christian records, writing books, all the above. Really quite a renaissance man. We talk a lot in this interview just about curiosity. And really in 2017, we're taught to stay in your lane. And, and you've heard me talk a lot about this. I, I want you to realize there's a narrative to this entire conversation that you might hear it and think, okay, well, it's, it's all right to jump around and do all these different things. But what you'll learn is they're actually very calculated and he spent a long time honing and perfecting each one of these things. See, he was a very successful music producer and songwriter for an entire decade before he even thought about branching out of that. So... If you're a new music producer looking to break into the industry, if you're an artist, if you're a songwriter, if you're a player, then my advice to you is this, and, and it's, it's, you'll hear Matt speak to this a little bit, but it's all about finding your lane, sticking to it. And then once you want to jump and expand your creative horizons, it's perfectly okay to do that. As I've found out, I, I think a lot of people often ask, well, how do you, Seth, how do you handle everything that's going on at Full Circle Music? To me, I wouldn't be doing any of this if it weren't for an incredible team. And team is not something that you build overnight. It's something that takes years and years and years to establish trust with people and to you know build business models that support having a team. See, we hire people. There's a lot of overhead with that. But every year, our companies have seen massive growth. We're, we're growing on the label side, still growing on the production side. Myself growing as a songwriter personally growing our publishing roster, and then our Full Circle Music Academy right now. I'm actually live recording one room over from our main control room here at Full Circle Music Studios where there is a music production retreat happening. We've always got lots of stuff going on. So thought I would just mention that because Full Circle Music is always dedicated to providing incredible experiences, incredible opportunities to learn. And this month specifically... We are culminating with a giant, a giant announcement. announcement. Some of you who are on our 
newsletter email list may have already seen this or follow us on socials may have already seen this, but we just relaunched our music production mastery course. And we wanted to have this entire series lead up to that because honestly, guys, this is the best thing that I can personally think of to give to you guys, to offer to you guys that really pulls back the curtain on our production process. And we talk a lot on the show about the the importance of, as a songwriter, handing in great song demos. We talk about the importance for artists of understanding how to interact and work with producers or to even be able to produce their own stuff, especially on the front end. And we also have talked to a lot of session musicians who have moved to Nashville. And over and over again, we hear this common thread that you have to understand music production. If you're looking to be a career songwriter, an artist, a session musician, or of course, a producer, you have to understand these production techniques. And the best way that we could think to pull back the curtain behind all that was to relaunch our course, Music Production Mastery. As of today, it has been, this is day two of the launch series. If you're listening to it, it's October 30th, 2017. We've got one more day and then the launch is closed. Now, what's the launch? This course we're putting up for $9.95. This thing literally pulls back the curtain on every single detail. We teach our drum production and programming process. We teach how to track and edit bass and guitars, how to get an incredible vocal that's radio ready, or in some cases, you know, film and TV movie ready. We talk about mixing, we talk about mastering, we talk about post-production, songwriting, the entire process from start to finish. And we're not holding anything back. So that is going up for $9.95. But here's what the launch is. The launch is to celebrate the end of our music production month on the Full Circle Music Show. We're giving this thing away for $4.95, cutting the price in half. And if you're interested in that, don't wait on it. It's going to be going away tomorrow night at midnight. And that's November 1st. It's going to be gone. And then it'll be back up to the normal price of $9.95. So if you want to get it, now's the time to go get into that. Go to musicproductionmastery.com. Yes, just like it sounds, musicproductionmastery.com. And if you want more info on it, feel free to email us at support at fullcirclemusic.com. It's incredible. And, and the other really exciting things, we've got the $4.95 package. It's half the price. And then we've got a, a couple bonus items that we've added. And we've made a ton, a ton, a ton of new content. Spent the last several months here around the studio interviewing some of our favorite industry pros, getting their take on things. And so there's a bonus package that has tons of extra material to add to your arsenal. And then there's also a bonus coaching package too, if you want some one-on-one private training with us. So again, check that out. Go to musicproductionmastery.com. You'll get unlimited lifetime access to that at this price. It'll never go away. And this price is not coming back again because tomorrow night it's going back up to the full $9.95. Now's the time to get in on it. And we've had a small pilot group that's already went through it and helped us kind of tweak it out and make sure that the information that we're giving is valuable, that it's relevant, and that it's stuff that people actually want to learn. And the feedback that we've gotten is that not only have people learned and and seen their productions improve 10 times over, but a lot of them have said this has even been life-changing. So join them, hop in on the course, musicproductionmastery.com. I would love to just jump right into the interview with Matt Braun-Louis, Grammy-winning music producer, songwriter, label owner, author, extraordinary human being. Matt Braun-Louis, I'm in the studio of the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> it's awesome. Using an SM57 today, going, going old yeah, school. Yeah, old school. Hey, man, I think Bono uses a 57. Well, that's, right? honest, that's intentional. That's like, intentional. I think Michael yeah. Jackson used a 57 <laughs> time Nothing or two. better. Nothing, Nothing better. better. So yeah. if I start like busting out a U2 song in the middle of this, <laughs> it's, reasonable. it's pre-planned. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> but man, you are just on fire these days. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here on the show with us. Thanks. Yeah. Man, just... Let's take us back to the young Matt Bronley. Like, wow. like when did you first get into the industry? How old were you? 
I'll, I'll even backtrack just a little before that because I have a very distinct memory of being 16. Okay. And I was in the kitchen with my parents and I announced to them that I was going to do music professionally. And, you know, I think they were not surprised. You know, I spent like every waking hour like playing guitar and trying to write songs, awful songs. And, but, you know, they were concerned. I think a little bit at first, I mean, this was growing up on a farm in the middle of Kansas were not many people around me aspiring to be professional musicians or songwriters. Where in Kansas? A wheat farm in the middle of nowhere. So the nearest town had 20 people. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, the way that my mom talked about it is that we were 20 minutes away from the nearest gallon of milk. So, <laughs> you know, shopping was an enterprise. Shopping was a day. <laughs> so what did your parents do? You know, I think at first they were just concerned, like, what's your backup plan? That, I think that was question one. And they were probably, you know... Now I think back and I think my dad was probably like, what's going to happen to the farm? You know, this is, this is a family farm where I represent generation four or five, you know, so. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I've got two sisters and one of my sisters and her husband have, have really taken over the family farm. So, I mean, that was, it was all ordained. It was all ready to go, but I didn't know that. My parents didn't know that. And so as the only son, I think they were kind of looking and, and thinking like, well, maybe, you know, my dad had gone and was a Learjet pilot and had done other things and then came back to the farm. And I think in some ways, they maybe wondered if that would be the course for me too. So they're still waiting that out. It's like, <laughs> so 16, 16 years old, what's going through young Matt Bronlewy's head in that moment? Like why, what led you to make that decision? Because that's pretty yeah. young to like yeah. have that clear of a direction. Well, I thought it was young until, so my daughter, Grace, she's... 13 and basically made the same announcement to us the other day. <laughs> so, so she's got me beat, I think already. You know, it's silly, but like one of my best friends, his older brother played guitar. And you have to remember the size of schools out in the middle of Kansas is, is very, very tiny. So I went to a school that had like 76 kids and there was one guitar player in the entire school. It was my best friend's like older brother. And he had this like amazing Ibanez guitar with what was called a monkey grip. And I mean, this was like the heyday. Oh, I totally know the, what that is. <laughs> this was like the heyday of like the <laughs> hair band, like the guitar gods, all that kind of stuff. And so I looked at him and he was going to be a graduating senior. So I was like, okay, he leaves. Who holds this position in the school? I was like, this is my chance. So I was like, grew my hair out, played guitar. I mean, that summer I practiced so manically that I remember at one point my dad came into my bedroom and was like, uh, son, can you please come watch television with us as a family? Because I would just, I would practice for six or seven hours on end, you know, just- Like practicing scales oh, and hair, everything. hair metal stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, solos and this. And in my head, I was aspiring, you know, I wanted to be one of those guys. You know, I wanted to be like an Eddie Van Halen or a Nuno Betancourt or all these- So when you announced that you had thought in your mind that meant being touring shredder guitarist guy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I thought in my head I would be, you know, at that time, one of the preeminent positions was being the main guitarist in a band. So, and I mean, in some of these bands, people knew the guitarist before they even knew who the lead singer was. So that was, I think in my head at that point, that's what I was kind of announcing to my parents that I wanted to do that. So they were questioning at first, but then they shifted into a mode really quickly of being very supportive and actually purchased like my first, what was called a four track, which was like a cassette recorder that could do four tracks at the same time. You know, this, at that time it was like the most advanced technology. Like I, I couldn't believe that I could record four tracks. And you're, so you're six, you're 16 with a four track recorder? Yeah, 16, like 17. What were you recording? Songs. I mean, I, I was like very earnest in trying to like arrange and come up with stuff. And I had a few different kind of little keyboard units and I just was trying to get my hands on anything I could. I would drag my friends into it for as long as they were willing to sit in my bedroom and like, you know, hold up this or that or an amp or like tune this or help me in whatever way. It was really fun. Well, you've got a very multifaceted career and I want to get to that. Yeah. But what was your first, often we hear in the music business about a big break. Yeah. Did you have one of those or did you feel like it was more a yeah. oh, small I mean, series of chipping away? It's like so clearly defined in my life. So went to college. My roommate was Charlie Lowell, who eventually you might know him as the keyboardist in Jars of Clay. And it's like Dan Hasseltine lived in the room next door and eventually Steve Mason as well. And our, Belmont. this is at Greenville College in Greenville, Illinois. I've been so, there. Okay. So pretty close to St. Louis. 
I mean, it was really interesting though. Like, so I'm this small town kid from Kansas, not even small town, small farm town kid from Kansas, like go to the big city, you know, it's like, we'd go to St. Louis. That was like, I couldn't, you know, get, wrap my head around how big a city it was, but Greenville was nearby. It was quiet. Charlie Lowell is from Rochester, New York. And his musical tastes and his like musical acumen, like what he'd grown up around, it was so far advanced from what I'd kind of known. He just introduced me to all these sounds and bands and things that I just wasn't like familiar with. And I remember the end of my freshman year, there was kind of a decision time in terms of like what I was going to become musically. And I had this box of cassettes, like, I mean, like every hair metal kind of band, whatever. And I remember I was moving from the college back to Kansas for the summer. And I had this huge box of like 500 cassettes and I threw them away. It was both cathartic, but it was also a moment of decision musically of basically either like taking Charlie's kind of way of like this new music that was coming out or kind of like just staying with what I knew. And, and so I like cut my hair, took up an acoustic guitar that I like retuned into this weird tuning. <laughs> I mean, I just went full bore into like this other lane, which was, you know, and this was led by things like Jane's Addiction and, and Indigo Girls and like all this kind of stuff. There was this kind of movement happening simultaneously with like electronic movement like music, like burgeoning and like all this other stuff. And so when I came back to college the next year, got together with Charlie and Dan and, and Steve too. It's like, you know, we started kind of accumulating this, this laundry list of musical influences and that led to Jars of Clay. And so it was really the formation of that band and the quick explosion of that band that kind of thrust me into a position to be in the music industry. So how long before... Freshman in college, how long was it before Jars of Clay put out music? So Dan and Charlie and I were doing music. In fact, I think it was our first night on campus when we were freshmen. We actually got into the attic of like one of the, it was like, I can't remember which building it was, but we like jammed. You know, we had like a jam session where, and this is so great because it's like, I played guitar, Dan played keyboards. He's an amazing like keyboard player. People don't always know it because they think of him as a lead singer, but he's amazing. And then Charlie Lowell played Wind Controller, which, <laughs> which uh, I think it was Derry Darty who like played it at the time, who was like a big influence. Yeah, yeah. The choir. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was like watching the choir that was like really what, what is a wind controller for people that so don't know what that is? It looks like a digital saxophone. I mean, it's like... It's this kind of unit that goes down like this. It's it's almost like looks a bit like a clarinet or something. Too. It's not very sexy looking. Do you like, blow into it? Yeah, like, you, you do. And it's like that creates the velocity. So you you do have like a lot of control. You'd need to- But it's, a, but it's an electronic thing. It's a MIDI yes. controller. Yeah, it's a MIDI controller. Yeah, so you can play, you know, you could play guitar as a saxophone. Yeah. That's amazing. I kind of want to go <laughs> yeah. back and like just buy one of those. Yeah, for- I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if like Bon Iver or somebody has used one. Like- Maybe, you know, it's like, I mean, that would kind of make sense. Totally. So you're in this attic jamming and then yeah. what's the first thing that you guys put out? Was it like an indie EP kind of thing? So scroll to like a year later and Jars has actually now like formed and we begin to like write songs. And really though, the huge difference maker in that kind of enterprise, we came up to spring break and we wanted to stay behind. Instead of like going to all these, you know, beaches and wherever for spring break, we wanted to stay behind and record. They had a great recording facility at the college. We wanted to stay there and record something. And this is amazing. But Warren Pettit, who was the main guy there, he's like, listen, guys, this is probably information that shouldn't even be out there. I have no idea. Sorry, Warren. It will this, be like, out somehow there. Gets you in trouble. <laughs> Warren was like, listen, I'm going to give you like a key. He's like, you're going to have to break into your dorms. You can just stay on campus. I mean, he didn't tell us to break into the dorms. It's like, we figured that out. But it's like, we actually left our window open a crack and we snuck back into our dorm rooms and we stayed there on campus. And then we had a key to the studio. And so we lived in the studio for like the week of spring break. And we recorded what ended up being most of that first kind of record that everybody's familiar with. In the dorm room. Well, no, up in the studio. studio Yeah, they had a studio there. So we did all this recording that led to kind of the first Jars of Clay CD. So like Flood and all all of that was... Flood wasn't on it, but there were like, I can't remember how many songs were on it. Seven or eight songs. That was used to get into a a contest, a band contest that was here in town. Or the the CD was. The CD was. 
And so we went to, and I can't remember the name of the contest, but it was basically with CMA week or no, what am I saying? GMA. With GMA week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like during that week, they had this spotlight competition, I think it was called. And we ended up being entered into that. We won that competition. And then it was like this just, I mean, the phone was like ringing off the hook with people interested in in what this thing was. So go into a week for a lot of the listeners out there who may be younger, don't even remember yeah. what GMA is. I mean, right. it was a week long, essentially music industry conference mm-hmm. where everybody in the industry would gather yeah. showcases, meetings, radio interviews, hangouts, and contests, just like the one you were talking about. So that yeah. ultimately turned into a record deal then? It did. Yeah. And, you know, I think the specialness of an event like that is is that every A&R guy was there. You know, every A&R person was present pretty much. And so, you know, when you were performing in that contest, it was this showcase for the industry. And I think on some level, I mean, I think we knew that, but like, but I don't think we knew the importance of it until, I mean, it is so scary. Like, I I mean, I have a kind of vivid memory of being, you know, I think I was 19 and standing in front of there and looking out into the crowd and kind of realizing like, oh my word, like these people can determine your fate, you know, which is really, I mean, it actually is true. They made a decision that ultimately helped me be here today. So, you know, that's no small thing. So this is kind of the culmination of we've had October has been focused on music producers and Hmm. spotlighting on music producers. Were you producing this stuff at that time or were you kind of in the band and doing all of the above? Yeah, I really did not consider myself a producer. And in fact, the role of producer, I didn't even really consider. I'd been a fan of producers big time. There were many producers I was like, you know, enraptured by kind of what they would do in the studio and what they, how they would kind of get about that and how they would converse with artists to kind of get them to that place. But in terms of myself, that really didn't happen until the very first record with Plum. And I'd been doing some songwriting with her. It's like a whole other kind of wild story how that happened. But like, we were sitting in a meeting with Robert Beeson, who had signed Jars of Clay. And Tiffany and I were playing, I was playing acoustic guitar. She was singing. And after every song, I would explain to Robert, I was like, hey, here's how maybe it could be done in the studio. Because I knew like this acoustic guitar vocal demonstration of a song wasn't very a very good depiction of where the songs needed to go musically in, in terms of their kind of culmination. So I explained it to him. And at the very end, he was like, you know what, Matt, what you're doing when you're talking about the vision for each of these songs is that's production. Like that's what producing is, is like so imparting this a- vision. So a- A&R guy told you that. Yeah. And Tiffany, you know, to her huge credit was willing to like, to say like, yeah, I I believe Matt can step in and make this happen. So actually Dan Hasseltine and I, it was a co-venture on that first record. I ended up having to kind of, he had some other things going on with jars that he needed to pick up. And so I kind of had to finish out the process. And that really forced me into a place of really having to, for the first time, take control of the idea of what it was to be a producer. And for me, it's like, I was looking up to people like, Brown Bannister and Charlie Peacock and Steve Taylor. Like that was kind of my trifecta in terms of here in town of people that I just aspired to to emulate. So from Plum Record, what kind of happened next? Were were the doors flinging wide open or was it kind of a struggle to keep pushing forward? It it was really interesting because it's like, I actually was talking to Dave Steinerbrink about who's my manager. So talking to him about this just earlier this week, I think what was really important about that first Plum record is, and to Robert Beeson's credit, he really left us to our own devices. I mean, he allowed us to really explore and to really dive deep and to just be experimental. And we did. I mean, we just took every opportunity to do it. And I mean, this was at a time where nobody was recording in like spaces like these. Like you had to have thousands upon thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars studios, like it was an enterprise to do anything. So for somebody to both give us that money, but then to also say, you know what, go for it, like try something. So I think what we did is we walked out with something we were really pleased with that sounded like nothing else out there. And it brought, I mean, honestly, it brought work so quickly. And I've thought about that recently. It's actually something that I want to take more hold of again now is this idea that like how important it is to dive deep to create art that is meaningful, 
Um, but that also like pushes some boundaries. And like, I think it's so easy these days to just look at it and say like, what is going to do well? Um, what's everybody else doing? Like, how does this line up with everything? But I think to like, look at it and say like, okay, I'm going to shrug off all that. I don't care. Like, I just want to make something that's either, you know, beautiful or meaningful or push the edge or like, I think it's harder to do that than it is to just make something down the line. Because if you do something down the line, you can be, you can at least look to other things and say, well, they did well, so maybe we'll do well. You can kind of use that as a home base to, yeah. to build off of. So, I mean, we talk about that a lot. References are great yeah, and they're fine, but you're totally right. The exploration process, in my experience, is, is rare these days just because yeah. people don't have that kind of time um, they don't have the kind of budgets to really make it worth anyone's while to do it. Yeah. So you kind of take things into your own hands, which is what you've done. So, well, and in the end, I think it's just harder. Yeah. But, you know, because I think it requires two things. One is that it's not really on the back of the producer only. I mean, you know, as a producer, I feel like my first role is to be the guy in the passenger seat holding the, the map, you know, and to try to provide vision, support, encouragement. So number one, you've got to have an artist who's willing to kind of go there. Yeah. And, yeah. and most aren't, honestly. Like yeah. most artists, when given uh, the opportunity, they just want to be popular or they just want to be, you know, whatever. But it's like, it's a rarer artist who's like, you know what? I just, I have this passion to say X yeah. or I really need to sing about whatever. And then to dive deeply into that and then to have a producer who's supportive of that it feels rarer. Yeah, I think so many times nowadays, music producers are charged with the task of quote unquote developing or creating a yeah. creative vision for the artist. And that's really not something that producers were ever supposed to do in the first place. Yeah. I like that analogy that you're in the passenger seat holding the map. That's that's awesome. So between Plum and where we're at today, I mean, you've had so much success with artists from multiple genres. It's been on Selena Gomez and David Archuleta and all these things. I was going through your credits yeah. before and it's like, holy cow, this guy's like done it all. And so was it always sort of in your head to branch out of the Christian genre or did it kind of just happen? I, you know, I think it just happened. And in fact, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day I have, you know, one single out with like on the Christian charts right now with 10th Avenue North. But other than that, I have almost nothing in Christian music right now. And that's not by choice at all. But I will say that I feel like some of it has been fueled by what Christian music kind of has turned into, which is like, you know, I feel like obviously the worship movement's huge, but I feel like a lot of Christians have chosen to just do mainstream music. And so, you know, and in some ways I've kind of, peeled off and followed a lot of that as well. I think too, some of that, if you look at Jars of Clay and Plum, those were things that kind of fit into some of the mainstream movements as well. And so I've even wondered like, were those projects to happen today? Would they be under the auspice of a Christian label? I don't know. You know, it's like, I think there are some Christian labels who are willing to kind of chase things like that. But sometimes, you know, a mainstream home may be better for that. Yeah. So in no way was it like a, decision that I sat down and say like, well, I'm going to do, you know, more film and TV music, or I'm going to do country music, or I'm going to do whatever. It's really been just naturally kind of charged by my own curiosities to do something different, to work with new people. I'm huge about connecting with people, creating community with people. And so most of it has just been birthed out of new community. Well, I love that. And you used a, a word that I have been so big on lately, the curiosity factor. Yeah. Most people today are not curious. Yeah. Or they're just curious about their tiny little lane of whatever that thing is. But yeah, you've obviously been curious about all kinds of different music. You've been curious about getting songs in film and TV and you've succeeded at that. You've yeah. been curious about writing a book and that has happened. Yeah. Or two books, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, working on a new one now. Yeah, Three, the trilogy. <laughs> Can you talk just two minutes on that? What kind of led to that? Because that's even well, aside. You know, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I know that my curiosity has probably, if I were more focused on specific things, that would probably be better, maybe financially or who knows. In some ways, I just can't help myself. And I feel like in terms of the longevity of a creative person, to be hyper-focused on one thing, 
I don't know how many years you can be hyper-focused on one thing. And so I don't know if I just had a sense that early on that I was, if I were going to be in this for a long time, that I needed to spread my wings a little bit. It was probably never so calculated. I think it was just part of just being a curious person. I mean, here's the thing though, curiosity, there's a certain amount of kind of, I'm using this word incorrectly, but there's an amount of waste that happens there. And I don't want to say waste because I think it's all deeply impactful, but there's a certain amount that just, you know, we have this hyper-focus these days on utility and like, is every minute being utilized properly? And and like, let's cut out every single minute that we can and just be like hyper-focused. But if you're going to be curious about these things, it's going to take you down avenues you never knew. There's going to be just times where you're kind of wandering out in the desert thinking like, what am I even doing this for? But man, it's just like, I find over and over and over that not knowing the destination so many times is so helpful. Like just being led from one thing. to It's like from one oasis to the next. You know, that's what it feels like. It's like, like I'll get to one oasis in the desert and be like, where am I? And I'll see kind of another distant oasis and I'll make it to that one. And I feel like that's what led from a curiosity about books to publishing a book. You know, that's what led from being curious about screenplays to co-writing with a friend, one that we're, you know, shopping a pilot for. So it's like, it's things like that that I feel like are really necessary in kind of the creative journey. You know, if you're talking about your whole life being kind of part of that enterprise. Well, how many years has it been since, I mean, if you would like to reveal your age, but (laughs) 16 years old, I mean, like... So, you know, I mean, I'm 43. I really got my start at 20. Okay. So I'm at the 23-year mark. Gotcha. Which it it honestly makes so much sense what you're saying. And I assume you're a reader because you're a writer. Yeah, well... Yeah, I'm sitting in your studio, which I love this. The sound treatments are literally books. That's genius. Um, I had somebody say too, they're like, but have you read all these? And I was like, I guess I have. All of them. Wow, that's awesome. You know, it's like some, I stopped at page 50. Right. So, but I've been going through Walter Isaacson, Leonardo da Vinci, his, his latest biography. Yeah. That man is the pinnacle of what you just said. Yeah. He was curious about everything there was to be curious about. Oh, completely. And he stood at the intersection of art yeah. and science yeah. and commerciality and humanities and all these different things. I mean, he has yeah. the largest collection of journals of just... Well, I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, him exploring what does the tongue of a woodpecker look like? Right. Like he had a whole section in his journal about that. And I think the question for today's person is... You know, if he'd grown up today, I think somebody would stop him and say, like, is this useful? You know, like, okay, you're, you're creating all these journals, you know, you're creating all, all this stuff, but like, what does it mean? Like, I think if somebody had stopped him and like forced him to like answer for that in the moment, I think that'd be hard. But it's like, now we see kind of in retrospect what that created. Yeah, and know, ultimately came about. The, who was really probably regarded as the greatest creative yeah. in history. Yeah. You know? And Definitely one of. For yeah, sure. you're totally right. Nowadays we have this obsession, and I think there's a good part of it. It's focus on efficiency. Yeah. It's focus on what's the result of every action. Yes. And yeah. in, well, and the singularity, like yeah. the idea of the polymath, the idea of somebody who had varying enterprises and varying interests, the you know, quote unquote Renaissance man, yeah. like that idea, I think, has been lost in this pursuit of kind of singular excellence. Mm. But, you know, it's like you go through history and it's not just Da Vinci. It's like, I've been reading up on this guy, Francis Bacon, and he's an amazing, I mean, he's just like that, you know, like multilinguist and fascinations in science and arts and all kinds of things. You know, he's just a fascinating character. So, you know, you know, and you look at these people and you think like, wow, like how could I have a piece of that now? Well, oftentimes it involves like opening the scope a lot wider, you know, a lot wider than where we are today. Yeah. So if you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of a new creative, maybe a musician, somebody who's aspiring to be a music producer, would you say it's important to at least start with kind of one thing, get really good at that? Or would you advise them, hey, try it all? I mean, you know, I hate to say both, but I had somebody tell me one time, they said that often when you look at these people who had varying kind of interests, there is some kind of sequence to it. Like they will sometimes be focused on one area for a particular time. So it doesn't have to be everything at once, you know, and hopefully, you know, God willing, you live long enough. There is time that you can do things in these increments or be pointed toward it. 
when I started to do some book writing, my goal was not to write a book then. I mean, it ended up happening much, much sooner than I ever imagined. But my goal was that within the next 10 to 20 years, I would be a like writer or able to publish a book. So you have a very macro view of yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. And I think creatively, I mean, I think what I see is that you are in some ways going to be forced into that position if you're not already. So, because there's very few people who can stay singularly focused and do it for 40 years, you know, on one area. There may be some branching out or some new acquisition of knowledge or some, there's going to be some shift in there. You know, we know that we shift as people and change as people. So why should our interests remain the same during that change? So when you wrote your first book, which I guess was the first probably venture outside of maybe being a music producer or songwriter. Yeah. You had still been doing that for what, a decade? Yeah. Yeah. It was really at about the 10 year mark that I, I started having that yeah. interest. And I've some, I was talking to somebody recently about how they've come up with this number of like 18 to 20 years seems to be a transition point for a lot of people mm. that, you know, you see that, but you probably see these and who knows whether it's like in the back of our minds, whether every kind of decade, you know, we right. take a little tally and see, I mean, I do think that there's a great help in, especially early on in having something that you're the most passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that it's like sometimes wise to just, continue to be interested in other things as well. And even to have those things inform what you're most passionate about. So, you know, for me, it was like guitar, you know, it started with like that singular kind of thing. But I remember like reading and thinking about, you know, violinists and like, could that influence my guitar playing? But this sounds weird, but it's like, I also loved movie scores. Like I loved John Williams and all these other things and these big kind of lush orchestrations and I think that that impacted the type of music I was attracted to. I loved bigger music. You know, at the time it was like music that would fill an arena. But I feel like story actually influenced music in that way for me. So let's talk about a little bit of the nuts and bolts just with some of these yeah. big opportunities that you've had come your way. I mean, you know, your credits list is a mile long. Selena Gomez, all these, Chris Tomlin. How did those type of big opportunities come your way? I feel like I can never take credit. I'm like, I, I don't even know how any of it has, honestly. Like, I mean, in any room, I'm always like the lowest on the totem pole. I have the least to offer, but I am going to be the most encouraging I can be, the most supportive I can be, the most energetic and, and hopefully help cast some vision. You know, I think I had a discussion with Charlie Peacock about this one time and he even kind of identified like vision being something that was important to him that he felt, you know, he was like, I think that that's like, I think you're like that as well. It's like, that's maybe something you can bring to the table. And I, I feel like with most of the artists I meet with and have the best engagement with and the best results with, it really comes down to that. It's like me helping to crystallize a vision, you know, for what the music is either going to be like or what kind of emotion it's going to capture and then carrying that forward. Because ultimately, it's a weird kind of practice to take this very abstract notion of, okay, you know, like Maggie Eckford had called me and was like, let's, I want to do a Ruel song that's for my, I'm getting married. Like, you know, and then to take, so you take this really abstract idea of like writing a song for her wedding. And then like, but what does that sound like? You know, there's all these things that like we feel emotionally should be within there. So you as a producer have to figure out like, well, what are some things, you know, what are those things? Like, what are the things that are going to make somebody feel like this is a wedding song? You know, is it going to be strings? Is it piano? I mean, it comes down to sometimes things as simplistic as that, but then it's the movement of it. It's like capturing the right vocal. You know, I feel like when, when artists call me up or email me or my manager identifies somebody out there that I need to connect with, I think it really comes down to that. It's somebody that I'm going to connect with on a vision level. So talk about your production process. When you sit down with like Maggie, like you just said, yeah. in the room, does the song exist already? Or is it like, let's write it together? And you know, where do you, where do you even start? Yeah. I mean, it varies from artist to artist in terms of like how much walks into the room. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's a little. I tried to kind of 
create whatever percentage is missing, you know? So sometimes it's a bigger percentage than not, but I don't try to overextend that. If, if an artist walks in with a, an amazing idea, I don't try to like walk on top of something that's working. You know, I don't try to pave over grass that's already green and flourishing, mm-hmm. you know? And I see that a lot too. It's like, well, I just want my idea to be on there. But then, you know, going from there, you know, I'm a songwriter kind of first, like that really is my first love. So it's always going to be generated from there. And the music's always like being generated from that place, the songwriter place. Mm -hmm. And I feel like over time, it's even becoming more that way. Like if it's not, if the production is not supporting the vocalist, the lyric, the emotion, whatever it happens to be, then it doesn't need to be present. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that calls for like big productions. Sometimes it's really svelte, like tight knit, you know, like um, very singularized kind of productions. Mm. And I think too, that's allowed some variance, you know, to go from style to style. When songwriting and emotion are kind of your key elements rather than genre, Mm. you know, you can jump from style to style a little more easily. So are you Pro Tools, Logic? What's your... Pro Tools. I mean, I um, I have Logic. I should know it better. I keep like every year I keep saying to myself, like, I need to sit down and take a week and just force myself to use only logic. <laughs> but, <laughs> so you know, cool. it's like Pro Tools. I mean, I had Pro Tools. I had one of the first Pro Tools like units here in town. I, I actually acquired it from the Newsboys. Newsboys had bought like this huge system. This was like Pro Tools 4 or something like that. And it just wasn't working out for them. And so I purchased it. I think it cost me like 20 grand at the time. I mean, it was a major investment. And was it like $500 now or something? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, then this was like a refrigerator case with like, you know, ancient computer and all this kind of stuff. And at the time though, like I was like thought to be kind of crazy. Like everybody else was like, dude, like computers. And I was like, I was like, I think computers are going to get better. Like that was my gamble. I was like, I think this technology will What were will you using before that? Well, this was, I mean, when I first started, it was still two inch. And then then it was like the, what was it? DA88s came in and like the, like it, it was like all the VCR type recording units. Like those were like the big deal. And like the, it was like the micro cassette kind of thing. And so was, you kind of used all of those over the course oh, yeah. of your yeah. production And career. actually I'm really glad that I had the time, especially on two inch when I first started you, because you had, 24 tracks, when you recorded vocals, you know, you had maybe a few, three, four tracks to record vocals on. If you punched in, you recorded over what you had before. So you really were forced to make very hardcore decisions. Like, do I keep this or do I, there was no undo. There was no going back. If you made a mistake or punched in at the wrong place, that was it. Like, it was just a no mistake kind of way to operate. But there was a beauty about that. You know, you were just really forced to make decisions and hold to them. Yeah. There was just no other way. So in your production process, do you carry that mentality with you today? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here, I mean, in some respects, yes. And in some others, no. It's like, do, you know, if, if a vocalist needs a hundred takes to get there, will I do it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I'm not going to back off from, from any of that. Do I like being able to keep everything? Yes. I think what it forced me into, though, is to be very sensitive to pitch and timing and the performance. Like that, early, those early years where that's all you had, you know, if the vocalist was off, you didn't get... I mean, these days, you know, you could just put up the mic, have them sing it a hundred times and figure it out from there. I feel like my focus now is like, especially in working... I love working with vocalists. It's, it's probably my favorite part of it. And I had, this was probably the, the best compliment I've been given on vocals is I had a vocalist say to me one time, they're like, how do you make me feel like I'm that you're in here with me? Mm. I was like, that's how I feel when I'm on the other side hitting that talk back button is that we are on the same team. Mm. Like you are having to sing and I get that and I understand how hard that is, but we are both there in the booth. And it's like, I want to find every way to support and encourage and like, how are we as a team going to get there? Mm. Like, I know you want to sound as good as possible. How can I help you get there? I feel like that's so vital and so important. And yeah. a lot of that came from those early days. That's been one thing I've, you know, I, I love your work. I've looked up to it over the years and vocals have always been so important in yeah. your 
production. I don't know if you think of it that way, but I do. Yes. Yeah. To me, I'm never worried if a Matt Bromley produced vocal is going to be great. It's always going to be amazing. Cool. I appreciate that. What's your process? Like when you get the singer in the booth, are you having him do start to finish? Are you having him do sections? How do you typically approach that? It's generally sections. It, not always. I mean, I've definitely had multiple times where I've just had him. If there's an emotion that needs to be carried throughout, or it's really an emotional journey from top to bottom, I'll have him sing it from top to bottom. Actually, <laughs> the like craziest version of that, I did a record with Michael W. Smith where we recorded his vocal. So what we did is we took all the songs, we lined them up, except for I think there was one tune we couldn't that wasn't finished. We lined them up. He said his vocal on the record was sung from top to bottom. So like nine songs back to back. That was the lead vocal. But it was really to just capture the essence of a certain thing. It was kind of like a dare. Can we do this? But generally, it's just like, you know, capturing a number of takes per section, usually verses first, and then go to the chorus and then the bridge. I mean, my main thing is we might backtrack and come back to a section. But, you know, my big thing is just making sure that the environment is right, that the artist feels like they, it's so exposed. You know, it's like vocalists will talk about feeling like they've just been stripped of all their clothes and are like standing in front of an audience. And yeah. you have to have a certain amount of empathy for them in that moment. And I feel like if you can, then you can fully support everything they're trying to do. Mm. Uh, so that's vital. Yeah. Any plug-in recommendations? Like, are there any that you've gotten lately in the past year that you're super pumped on? Or software instruments? You know, I feel like contact like continues to become more important. To uh, Like, I almost feel like it's like, you're almost using sometimes Pro Tools to use contact or it's like, like there's so much within contact instrument wise, especially if you're doing like film and TV stuff or, or anything like that. Are uh, there, are there any libraries you use within contact that you've gotten that you're super pumped on? I'm trying to think of stuff in particular. I mean, I love the Spitfire libraries in terms of just their kind of realism and their kind of how big those libraries can kind of sound. Man, there's, there's just so many. I mean, I get in the trap though too of, of like of accumulating way too many. I, I mean, already in my system, there's way too many plugins and ways, you know, there's specific things. What is it, the Arvox wave plugin for compression? I think is really great. And is that like a go-to? You can pretty much count on that that'll be on everything. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, I love the Pro-Q for EQ, just, you know, being able to kind of surgically work on things a little bit. You know, I've done a little more mixing over the last few years. And so that's kind of forced me into a place of having to think through some of those decisions a bit more. Is that just out of kind of necessity, budgets, or just the workflow? Well, everything. I mean, sometimes though it's been birthed creatively. I mean, listen, if I can use a mixer effectively, I'll choose it every time because they're going to make really great decisions that I won't make. Like I would always choose that. But there are some times where, there's been times where creatively, being right wasn't always right. So, you know, sometimes like mixers will make a correct decision, but sometimes I'll need to make a creative decision. Yeah. And those can be different. And it's not because the mixer isn't creative. Mixers are highly, highly creative. I love all of them like desperately. But sometimes it's just, you know, I'm in the room with the artist. That's a benefit they sometimes don't have. And so sometimes I can just react in the moment and push up a certain fader or move something or create a certain reverb because I've heard the vocalists talk about how they want it to sound. That's awesome. Well, Matt, I know you're a busy man. I know you're probably getting ready to work on the next Grammy winning record today <laughs> or write a book. I don't know. Let's, might make a movie. Maybe, but maybe all three. You've got That's a label it. now. Yeah. And yeah. releasing stuff releasing under stuff. your own artist name, which is... Yeah, I've got Unsecret Music. Unsecret Music. And yeah. people can find you at unsecretmusic.com okay. and, and wherever else music is accumulated. <laughs> unsecretmusic.com. Yeah. We'll check it out. So, man, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your story and your experience with our listeners. And yeah, we like to, to end these things off with one piece that if you're talking to put your mind back in your, in, in your 20 year old shoes, yeah, new music producer moving to Nashville, what is one thing that you would want to leave somebody like that with who's in that position of like just getting started? You know, I really think it comes down to like digging into like what on a gut level, like what on a purely passion level moves you like to try, especially this is so hard these days with the amount of social media we have. 
but to kind of cast aside all the kind of noise around you and to just ask yourself kind of daily, like, what am I most passionate about and how can I support that? That's good. Well, Matt, thank you so much, man. Thank Appreciate you. you. Yeah. I love your work. Keep doing it. Me Look too. forward to seeing what the next 20 years, 23 Thanks. years will be for you. Love it. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you have been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, The Why of the Music Biz. Whew, you stayed in with us. Five weeks of music production goodness. Again, don't forget to head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and review. Thank you for sharing this with your friends, as so many of you have seen this show growing month over month, year over year. And once again, just a huge reminder, go and check out musicproductionmastery.com. Again, if you're an aspiring music producer, if you're a up-and-coming songwriter, if you're a session musician, or if you're an artist, and if you're up-and-coming or if you're experienced. See, we've had people in our beta group take the course. Some have just been on their very beginning stages of their production and musical journey, and others have been doing it for well over a decade. And the feedback has been universally positive all around that this is a phenomenal thing, phenomenal learning experience. If I personally had the chance to sit down with every one of you who are listening to this, I would love nothing more than that. But I just don't have the time to do it. So that's why we created this course. So I could just brain dump everything that's in my mind and that's in X O'Connor's mind, who you also hear on this music show. He's my co-producer on everything. We created this thing, spent months doing it. And I think you're just going to get tons of value out of it. Again, putting up for $9.95, but until tomorrow night, it's $4.95. So now's the time to get it. If you want to get in, the price is going up at midnight tomorrow night, November 1st, 2017. And I would love to see you in there. Again, it's lifetime access. Never goes away. Check that out. Musicproductionmastery.com. And we will see you back here next week. We've got an awesome interview with my good friend, Wisdom Moon, who is a music marketing genius. So we'll see you then.